0: Visit plannedparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We are the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great Wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, 25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. Nearly two years ago, election deniers attacked the Capitol in an attempt to stop the Electoral College vote from being certified. At the time, former President Donald Trump and his allies attempted to exploit this 135-year-old law called the Electoral Count Act of 1887. In fact... Senator Ted Cruz gave a speech about it.
1: The framers knew what they were doing when they gave responsibilities to to Congress. We have a responsibility, and I would urge that we follow the precedent of 1877. The Electoral Count Act explicitly allows objections such as this one for votes that were not regularly given.
2: Fast forward to now. Congress is in its lame duck session, and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are trying to pass legislation to prevent something like January 6th from happening again. It's called the Electoral Count Reform Act. We wanted to dig into the ins and outs of the bill, so we called Rick Hassan.
3: I'm Rick Hassan. I'm a professor at UCLA School of Law, and I direct the Safeguarding Democracy Project.
2: Before we dive into the Electoral Count Reform Act, I want to talk a little bit about what it's reforming in the first place. What is the Electoral Count Act of 1887?
3: When you look at the Constitution, it doesn't contain a lot of rules about how it is that Congress is supposed to figure out who's won the presidency. and. What the Electoral Count Act is, is a set of rules that give those details. For example, suppose that somebody objects to the counting of electoral college votes from a particular state. What's supposed to happen? And the act tells us, well, the House and Senate that had been meeting together, they adjourn and they meet in their separate chambers and they have two hours of debate and then they vote. So the Electoral Count Act most basically is the the set of ground rules for Congress to figure out which candidate got the most electoral college votes and then also the kind of subsidiary rules of how to deal with conflicts about that.
2: What was going on in 1887 that this legislation needed to even happen in the first place?
3: So Congress adds the 12th Amendment to the Constitution after problems with the old rules where, you know, the first place candidate gets to be the president and the second place candidate gets to be the vice president. They might be from opposite parties and so, you know, we set it up. Actually, they're going to run as a ticket. Make, makes for a much more efficient government. But then there was a dispute in 1876. This was the famous Hayes-Tilden presidential election. comes right after the Civil War. And they actually have to form a commission to resolve it. They make the chief justice head of the commission. They reach a compromise. That compromise, by the way, is what ends period of reconstruction in the South, so it has some very terrible consequences unrelated to elections for the United States, and it leads to a period of disenfranchisement of African-American voters in the South that lasts for another almost century. But Congress realizes after this disputed election that they need to come up with some more detailed, better rules, and so they passed the Electoral Count Act to try to do that.
2: And that's so interesting. I feel like something that gets lost in all of this is that impact on Reconstruction. How did this, you know, specific piece of legislation end up impacting that?
3: So it wasn't the legislation itself that impacted that, but it was mm. the compromise mm. in terms of how the presidency would be resolved. You know, let the Republican win, let the Democrats in the South reclaim their power over their governments. And- Change the rules to suppress African American voting, which actually there was a period of time after the Civil War when you had a number of African American legislators people who were elected to office, and then that all comes to a screeching halt with the the period of the redemption, so uh, it was a very heavy price to pay to have this election resolved and I think Congress wanted to avoid a constitutional and national crisis the next time there was a close election and some dispute over which electoral college votes from a state should be counted.
2: How similar is this moment we're in to the moment we were in when the Electoral Count Act was originally passed? I mean, I think, I don't know, like even the fact that the Voting Rights Act has been, you know, defanged in major ways and the Compromise ended Reconstruction, or, you know, there's uh, people saying like, oh, this election was a fraud. That happened back then too. I, are the parallels between these moments in our country really strong?
3: Well, remember, the Electoral Count Act was about a decade after the end of the Civil War. Like, There were federal troops for a number of years in Southern states. Mm-hmm. They end up getting withdrawn after this, Hayes-Tilden election in 1876, right? So we may be polarized now, but that was an actual war between the states. Mm. So it's hard to draw parallels with the period so far in the past, but maybe, you know, the optimistic side is we made it through that period. We'll make it through this one. The less optimistic side is we made it through that period at the cost of disenfranchising African-American voters for 90 more years.
2: yeah.
3: Now, I was just reading a case, 1903 case, Giles versus Harris. It's not one that people spend a lot of time talking about, talk about Dred Scott, right? But Giles is a case that comes after Congress passes and states ratify the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment says no racial discrimination in voting. And in the Giles case, an African-American male, this is a time when only men could vote, African-American male goes to the Supreme Court and he says, Alabama's disenfranchising me because I'm black and the Supreme Court says, yeah, that's a problem. That's too bad. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. So even after we fight a civil war and Congress and the states pass a constitutional amendment, it, it didn't stick. It took another six decades before the Voting Rights Act came. And so the legacy of slavery and the fights over our elections, you know it's been a very long struggle. I mean, think about the enfranchisement of women. Back in 1874, now we're really getting into the weeds, a a woman uh, sued in the Supreme Court and she said, you know, we just passed the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment says that citizens are entitled to all the privileges and immunities of of citizenship. All of us are. It's part of the 14th Amendment, near the Equal Protection Clause. She said, I'm a citizen, I should be allowed to vote. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you're a citizen, but voting is not a privilege of citizenship. It's really up to the states. And so then it took another 40 years, right, until the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. So the struggle over voting and voting rights has been really long and it's been fought really hard. And and in the last few decades, the Supreme Court has been making some of the progress that was contained in the Voting Rights Act. I think you used the word defanged earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's made it harder and harder to protect voting rights so, you know, we're in a really difficult moment in this country. Before 2020, my, one of my main concerns was about states making it harder for people to vote for no good reason. Now, you know, after 2020, I'm even more concerned about the basics. Can we count our votes correctly and have the winner declared the winner? But it's not quite as dire as it was a few months ago with the midterm elections and with the reform legislation to fix the Electoral Count Act on the cusp, I hope, of passing.
2: Let's fast forward. A lot, (laughs) to January 2021. I mean, what gaps in the Electoral Count Act did January 6th expose?
3: So I think we have to go back a little bit further to November 3rd, 2020. So when we had the election between Biden and Trump, and that was an election that took place in the middle of the pandemic.
1: Amid this pandemic, tens of millions of more Americans are looking to vote by mail than in past elections.
3: You had Donald Trump who was railing against the expanded use of vote-by-mail. And we knew that mail-in balloting was going to take longer to process, to be able to count those votes. On election night, Donald Trump was ahead in Pennsylvania. And then by the time we got to the Saturday after the election, when the networks were ready to call it for Biden, Donald Trump was saying the election was stolen and uh, he wasn't going to put up with it. And so he tried a number of ways to turn his loss into a victory. So one way was he went to court and he argued there was fraud. He argued there were regularities in part. These irregularities that he claimed were due to changes that were made in relation to voting during the pandemic. He lost all but one of those cases. He won on just a minor point in one case. Lost over 60 of these cases. And then he was looking for another strategy. And one of those strategies was to try to mess with the Electoral College count. So how do you do that, right? So there's a provision that's in the Electoral Count Act. It was actually in there from an an earlier congressional statute, but then gets incorporated into the Electoral Count Act that says that when a state fails to make a choice for president on election day, the legislature can step in. This is the so-called failed election provision. So imagine, for example, it's Florida, there's a terrible hurricane on election day, people can't vote, and so there is no choice made for president then what? Well, then the state can step in and the state legislature can pick the electors directly. That's like a backup provision that's in this act. And Trump wanted to use that to say, hey, look, there's fraud. There's uh, irregularities in how the election was run. Let's call that a failed election and let's let the legislature step in. So he was calling legislators in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, In Arizona. He's calling the governor of Arizona. These are all states where Biden won, but where there was a Republican legislature and where he hoped that the legislature could come in and try to appoint a different slate of electors. And then there'd be multiple slates of electors coming in and Congress would have to deal with it. So he was trying to exploit that part uh, of the law. Now, I don't think a fair reading of a failed election is one in which a candidate claims fraud So I don't think there was any legal basis for the state legislatures in those states to step in and try to change the results. But that was one of the things he attempted. You also may remember, if we fast forward to January 6th itself, do you remember the chance of hang Mike Pence?
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah.
3: So why should Pence be hung? Because he wasn't doing what Trump wanted. What did he want? Well, the Electoral Count Act says that the vice president presides over this joint session of Congress, kind of like the master of ceremonies. Okay, and now we shall open the envelopes that contain the winner, you know, a little <laughs> bit like the Oscars, and the Electoral College vote goes too, right? And Trump was claiming, oh, you know, actually under the Electoral Count Act, the vice president can decide on his own or her own to just throw out Electoral College votes if there was some irregularity. Nothing to support that, but that was the claim. And uh, Mike Pence got advice from an eminent conservative former judge named Michael Luttig, who said, you can't do that. But he was hearing in his other ear from former law professor John Eastman that, oh, yes, you can. So Pence said, no, it's my constitutional duty to just accept the valid Electoral College votes and let Congress vote on those.
1: The votes for president of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida
3: has received 232 votes. So those are two examples of pieces of the Electoral Count Act that Trump unsuccessfully tried to manipulate to get a better result.
2: I guess the question I have is, you know, why is the Reform Act necessary if these things are technically illegal as they stand now. Like, it, it sounds like these are things that would not hold up in the court of law. Is this necessary if this isn't legal in the first place?
3: So one of the things we learned about the 2020 election is that in order for our system of determining who the president is to work, people have to act in good faith. There was this moment, it's now the subject of investigation in Georgia, where Donald Trump calls the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger.
1: So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780
3: votes, which is one more than we have. And Raffensperger records the call, releases it, becomes a big controversy. Now it's this criminal investigation. Brad Raffensperger showed integrity and didn't do that. But imagine there's bad Raffensperger, and he does that. And then he says, look, I don't know who's really won the election. There was fraud. I think the legislature needs to step in and send in a different slate of electors. Or I think the governor should not sign the certificate of electors, which is one of the jobs of the governor of each state. And then Congress decides, you know what, we're going to accept this alternative slate that says that Trump has won Georgia rather than Biden. It's Not clear that the courts would step in because this is an inherently political question. Mm. And courts generally don't want to get involved. In questions where the Constitution says there's a different branch of government that has to decide this. Like, it's the Senate that tries impeachments, it's the Congress that counts electoral college votes. So, why we need a change to the Electoral Count Act is because next time some of the people in charge might be less scrupulous and they might try to take advantage of unclear rules. So, a rule that says, for example, the vice president has no power to throw out electoral college votes or state legislatures have no power to send in alternative votes unless there's been some kind of catastrophe like a hurricane or an earthquake. That would be helpful.
2: So we're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, we'll take a closer look at what this legislation actually does. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
2: Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm John gwlin Hill. We're talking with UCLA's Rick Hassan about the Electoral Count Reform Act. So, Rick, there's a House bill, which is the Presidential Election Reform Act, and a Senate bill, the Electoral Count Reform Act. And, you know, eventually these bills will likely be reconciled. But first of all, what are the similarities between these two pieces of legislation?
3: It's first important to point out that these bills have to pass in this session of Congress because when Kevin McCarthy or another Republican is Speaker of the House, this bill's not coming up. And there's not a lot of time in the lame duck session, the session after the election, which is going to end around Christmas or before Christmas. There's a lot that Congress needs to do. So they're now talking about throwing this provision into an omnibus spending bill or into a defense authorization. So it's going to become part of a bigger bill, a must-pass bill. So I don't think we'll have, you know, kind of like the how a bill becomes a law. I don't think we're going to have that where the House passes one version, the Senate passes another, they meet in a conference, then they both vote again. There's just no time for that. So probably the Senate's going to be the one that's going to dictate this and the House is going to go along. So let me focus a little on the Senate bill and just on the three main points that I think are worth mentioning. The first is that the failed election provision would be gone. So state legislatures could not come in and claim fraud and try and send in an alternative slate of electors. The second is clarifying the role of the vice president, which you'd think Republicans would be on board given, uh, you know, who's going to be presiding over the counting on January 6th, 2025? It's going to be Kamala Harris. Mm. Do Republicans want her to be able to throw out electoral college votes she doesn't like? I I don't think so. (laughs) No. The third provision, the one that I think is maybe among the most interesting has to do with the role of the governor. And this is something we haven't talked about. So I was very worried in the midterm elections if either Carrie Lake, who was running for governor in Arizona, or Doug Mastriano, who was running for governor in Pennsylvania, if either one of them had won, because both of them said that they would not have certified the election for Biden had they been governor of their states in 2020.
2: They watched a
0: corrupt election happen. And then they certified a corrupt election. And that's
3: the problem. You would not have certified our election. No, I
0: would not have. Karen,
3: would you... And so you could easily imagine them not signing a certificate for Biden if it was Trump versus Biden too in 2024. Now, one provision of the Electoral Count Act says that if there is a conflict where a state sends in multiple slates of electors, the one signed by the governor is the one that should take precedence. So that could be really scary in the event of a, an election denier as a governor. I think we're going to be able to dodge that bullet for 2024 because our elections now have taken place for all the governors who will be in place during 2024, you know, barring, you know, somebody dying or resigning or something. But this thing we have to worry about in the future. Uh, and this legislation is not just about 2024. It's about, the you know, what's going to happen in 15, 20 years if we have a Trumpist-type candidate, either a Republican or a Democrat, we, you know that's, that's a worry. And so one of the things that the Electoral Count Reform Act would do is say that if a governor tries to mess with the counts, that there is a right to file a special kind of election challenge case before a three-judge court of federal judges with a direct appeal to the United States Supreme Court. It's the same kind of structure that we use for certain kinds of voting rights cases and other cases, certain election cases that where you know we want to get a diversity of opinion. We don't want just one judge to be hearing it, and we want it to be fast tracked to the Supreme Court. So it has this kind of judicial review provision. And so the reason this is significant is, is you know, do you trust the courts? There are lots of Democrats who look back at Bush versus Gore and they don't really trust the courts. But the courts did the right thing in twenty twenty. And, you know, would you rather this being re- be resolved by the Supreme Court or you would you rather this be resolved by the House of Representatives, you know, whoever controls it? And so the choice that's made in this proposed legislation is to give that choice to the body that is least likely to be politicized, which would be the courts.
2: Are there any alternatives to solving that dilemma other than the courts? Like, it, it just seems like at every turn, the entity that would make this decision is politicized and, you know, has a dog in the fight. Is there a nonpartisan answer to this?
3: I don't think so in the short term. I mean, ultimately, I wrote this back in my 2012 book called The Voting Wars. I think we need to fundamentally change how we run our elections. And we need to have mm-hmm. an independent, nonpartisan body running our elections like they do in most other advanced democracies around the world, you know, Canada, Australia, Germany, UK, Mexico, they have independent bodies. You look at other countries around the world, they don't have decentralized partisan actors. So we've got this very convoluted system. And given that, the courts seem to be the least worst option.
2: And it's its just so interesting because as far as democracy goes, I would consider the United States, you know, a pretty old one, but it sounds like, are we a little bit behind the times in how we're running this compared to, you know, other
3: democracies around the world? Well, what I'd say is the fact that we're an old one is to our disadvantage. Mm. Most other constitutions are newer than ours. Our constitution does not even contain an affirmative right to vote. It doesn't enfranchise anybody. We were talking about the 2000 election earlier in the Bush versus Gore case, where the Supreme Court resolved the election dispute between Bush and Gore in Florida that ultimately led to Bush being chosen as president. The Supreme Court said that states could take back their power to choose presidential electors directly and not allow the people to vote in a future election. So a state could choose to disenfranchise their own voters from voting for president for a future election, and that wouldn't violate the Constitution. So we've got this really old constitution that doesn't well protect voting rights. It doesn't contain, uh, a, you know, an independent body to run elections or anything like that. And we have a constitution that is incredibly difficult to amend. Right? So how, how can you amend the constitution? The, the normal way is to a constitutional amendment that requires a vote of two-thirds of each house of Congress. Mm. That's, I mean,
2: <laughs> yeah. how are you
3: going to do that? And <laughs> yeah three quarters of the state legislatures have to sign on to. In our polarized times, hard to see how you get anything through.
2: I want to back up and talk a little bit more about some of the provisions of the ECRA. And we we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the role of vice presidents in all of this, and, and just to clarify what would the role of the vice president be under the ECRA? And how would that be different than what we have now? Would it be different at all?
3: I don't think that there'd be a substantive change. The vice president would still be the master of ceremonies with no power to do anything in deciding which electoral college votes are going to be counted. But it would clarify that Trump's theory that the vice president had this power is wrong. Mm. So that's helpful. Again, you know, Trump was kind of an election subversion advocate, but he was not a very competent one. I'm worried about the next one who's going to be more competent. And so we want to close down the avenues for trying to steal an election from the next demagogue who might try to use her power to do something like that.
2: Is there a reason that we need the vice president in particular to do this ministerial role. Like, I understand VP is president of the Senate. It's the Senate who certifies. But again, these are people who are beholden to political parties. Like, is there someone else who could or should be doing this?
3: All of these people are political people. So, you know, if you didn't have the vice president, you'd have someone from the Senate. And there was actually a moment, there was some confusion, where Chuck Grassley, who was kind of the next person in charge was going to be the one presiding. But you do need a vice president to break a tie in the Senate. You know, right now we have a 50-50 Senate and Vice President Harris has called in a fair amount to break ties. It just
2: seems like, I don't know, it can feel kind of despondent because it's kind of like, oh my gosh, like, are there answers to this? Like, is there a way out of this kind of political predicament we've gotten ourselves into?
3: Well, let me remind you that in 2000, after Bush versus Gore, right, Gore loses. He presides over the session where Bush is declared the president.
2: George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for president of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes.
3: Like nobody was wondering, hmm, is Al Gore gonna give up power? Is he gonna throw out the votes from Florida, right? We didn't ask these questions. When Bush gives up power to Barack Obama uh, after serving two terms in 2008 when Obama's elected, nobody was thinking, hmm, can our democracy survive this transition of power? It just like wasn't on the radar. I actually wrote a blog post for my election law blog remarking about how we accept these peaceful transitions of power as though they're natural and as though it doesn't take work. But it does. And now, of course, you know, you fast forward a little bit in time and you realize things are dicier than we thought. Uh, Because again, our system depended upon people acting in good faith, and they don't always act in good faith. And when you have a demagogue who is encouraging people to not act in good faith, then you start seeing where all of the holes are and what needs to be plugged so that you don't have problem in the future.
2: I I think I've just kind of taken and I think a lot of us have just taken the peaceful transition of power for granted of like, oh, yeah, that's how elections work. You do an election and then the next person becomes president and then you just keep going. But I, I guess this, yeah, it exposed that like that's not necessarily always the case.
3: Right. And, you know, I remember when I first started teaching back in the 90s that we didn't even teach about how The mechanics of voting work. Like we use voting machines, and the ballots have to be tabulated and the results reported. It just wasn't on the radar screen. It was. I taught an election law course. We talked about things like redistricting and campaign finance and the Voting Rights Act, but we didn't talk about election administration. Now it's a major part of my course. In two thousand, it was a wake-up call for all of us when we learned how bad the machinery was that was used to count votes. Now that machinery has been greatly improved. We need to improve it more, but it's been greatly improved. We think back in two thousand that about a million people were disenfranchised by bad machines; mm. <laughs> their votes just simply were not counted because the machines were not good enough. Remember uh, those uh, punch card voting machines? Like, the hanging like, chads. Exactly. So a lot of those ballots didn't get counted. So technically, we've improved a lot. We need to do more because a lot of the machines that were bought after two thousand are now reaching the end of their useful life, but We can't take anything for granted now. And it's bad enough when you have a polarized society where so much is on the line, where people think about our elections as being these existential moments, like, you know, what's the future of America going to be if this person wins? But it's even worse when you have people undermining the integrity of the election itself by spreading lies about it being rigged. What that leads to is a loss of the expertise that comes with election administrators, people who work in election offices. They're retiring, they're quitting because they're subject to harassment. Some of them have had death threats. I mean, it's just, it's not any way to run a democracy. And so we have to think about how to have secure elections across the board when it comes to the beginning of the process of voter registration to the end after there's a recount or an election contest.
2: That kind of brings me to another part of this that I'm curious about. And that's, we talked about this before, but the failed election provision. Now, what exactly is a failed election? Have we ever experienced that in this country before?
3: So I don't think that provision has been invoked before. But you're asking an excellent question because as Congress has been debating what to put in the reform. The question was, well, you know, how do you define what should count in the event of a problem? And it looks like Congress is going to settle on a word like catastrophic. Mm. You can imagine a Donald Trump claiming that the fraud was catastrophic, you know, (laughs) so you've got to, you know, write it in a way that talks about something like a natural disaster or a terrorist attack or something like that. Back when I wrote my book, Election Meltdown in 2020, one of the things I feared was a Russian attack on the power grid in a democratic city in a swing state. You know, imagine mm. taking down the power in Detroit. Oh, my God. What would you do if something like that happened? I mean, that could be a failed election. Let's say that Michigan, everyone in Michigan can vote except for the people who live in Detroit. That could swing the election.
2: Yeah, I was about to say that Michigan going to look a lot different without those Detroit voters.
3: So we do need to have something in our rules to deal with that. Are we going to just not count the votes from the people of Michigan? Are we going to let them do a do-over? Well, there's already a federal law that says everyone has to vote on the same day. Well, what happens if people can't vote because of a terrorist attack or imagine an earthquake in California or something like that? So we can take out the provision about failed elections, and the proposed legislation does that. But we need to have some backup in the event of a real catastrophe.
2: The Constitution safeguards against so much, but I just think the people who wrote it were likely not thinking about, first of all, power grids didn't exist. But this idea of like, okay, guys, let's literally rain check and do this election another day. We can't do things that simply or easily, can we?
3: Right. And aside from going to war, elections are probably the most complex thing we do as a country at once. You know, you could think about what you have to mobilize to run an election. No one's alive today from when that law was written. We've got to write a law that's going to last us till after we're gone in order to safeguard American democracy. And so you've got to kind of think ahead what could happen. How could people try to manipulate things? And you can't anticipate every contingency, but you can try to plan well, what if the bad actor is the governor? What if the bad actor is the legislature? How do you resolve these kinds of things?
2: Next up, we'll talk about what this legislation is missing and what else needs to happen if we want to reform our electoral process. We'll be right back. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought.
3: The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural. Without being too strenuous, it was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun.
2: This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. This is The Weeds, and we're talking about election reform with Rick Hassan, the director of the Safeguarding Democracy Project. So you mentioned the lame duck session before, and, you know, timing plays a role in this. Can you talk a little bit more about that urgency in passing this now? Do you think with the Republican-controlled House, this is just going to straight up be a no-go in 2023?
3: I don't think there's any way that this legislation passes before the 2024 election if it doesn't pass in the next few weeks. That's simply because this legislation is a repudiation of the strategy that Donald Trump tried to use in the 2020 election. And why would we think that Kevin McCarthy or whoever ends up being chosen by Republicans to be the Speaker of the House would bring that up for a vote? So I I just don't see it. And, And The reason this moment is actually hopeful for this reform, in contrast to the two years that Democrats spent trying to pass the For the People Act or the Freedom to Vote Act, failed because of the filibuster. Most legislation requires 60 votes in the Senate. Those other election reforms didn't have 60 votes. Right now, the Electoral Count Reform Act has 13 Republican co-sponsors, and support of most, if not all, of the Democrats. That means there's probably at least 63 votes, and I would guess more, to pass this thing. That's a moment you have to take. Some of those senators are retiring. Senator Blunt, Senator Portman, the ones who've been the Republican moderates, the ones who recognize that our election system needs to be guarded in the future against attempts to subvert it. They're, they're retiring. Now's the moment we have to strike. Well, The moderate Republicans are willing to support it in the Senate while Democrats still control the House. If it doesn't happen now, I'm going to be much more nervous about 2024, 2025 than I otherwise would be.
2: So, this legislation, while it's important, it only deals with one part of the election, and that's certifying the votes for president. What else do you think we need as far as voting reform goes on the federal level?
3: I would call this. Legislation, absolutely essential but insufficient to deal with the problem of election subversion. Let me give you one example of a really important provision I'd like to see on the federal level. In every state, states or counties get to choose what voting machines they're going to use. And according to some statistics put together by the Brennan Center, about 9% of voters voted in 2020 on fully electronic voting machines, that is voting machines that don't produce a piece of paper. Just imagine Donald Trump in 2020, if it was one of those states that he was claiming were full of fraud. So in Georgia, do you remember, Trump says the votes were fraudulent in Georgia, I don't trust them. Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, ordered a full-hand recount of every ballot in Georgia. They counted every single ballot by hand, and it wasn't exact, but it was very, very close to the results that were announced. If there's a wholly electronic voting machine and you do a recount, you push a button, and it's going to give you the same number. There's no way to verify what the software is doing in the machine, and more importantly, no way to convince people that... The number that's produced is accurate if they otherwise want to believe that there's fraud because there's no nothing physical that could be examined. So one of the things I think Congress must do, but it's apparently not going to do in this upcoming legislation, is mandate that for federal elections, everyone's got to vote on voting machines that produce a piece of paper.
2: Again, that kind of gets into this idea of what can be done on the state and local level. I mean elections, even when they are federal, they're very much up to individual states. And like, what can be done on that level? Are there movements among like states to get together and kind of, you know, standardize things? Like, what, what's the answer to this? Because it does seem like a kind of big issue.
3: So Congress, after the 2000 election, passed legislation called the Help America Vote Act, or HAVA, And it did a number of things, including providing money for upgrades to voting machines to make them more reliable. didn't force states to make the change, but offered them money if they did make the change. So right now, these choices are on the state or local level. But Congress, as a part of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, contains something called the Elections Clause that says the states get to set the rules for conducting federal elections, but is subject to federal override. So in 1993, for example, Congress passed something commonly known as the Motor Voter Law, more formally known as the National Voter Registration Act, that says for federal elections, states have to offer certain ways to allow people to vote. Like they can register to vote using what's called the federal postcard. It's just like a very basic bare bones piece of paper and contains some very basic information. States have to accept that as a means of voting. So that's an example of congressional override. Congress can come in and it can override the states on what voting machines it's going to use in federal elections.
2: Okay, so they just haven't done it. They haven't
3: done it. They should. There are other things too. So another thing I'd like to see is increase the penalties for trying to mess with elections. The people who actually physically invaded the Capitol, some of them are being prosecuted, some of them have already been convicted. There are investigations of the fake electors, those people who purported to be electors for Trump, who gathered and sent in fake certificates of election. We need to clarify who could be criminally responsible for engaging in this conduct and raise the penalties so that people will be more deterred from trying to engage in this activity. And we need to do more to protect election workers and election officials who are under attack, both physically, in some cases, and verbally if we're going to have a decentralized system and we're going to use civil servants on the local level to be on the front lines we've got to give them our support
2: so public confidence in our electoral system has just it's really been fractured are you hopeful that this is part of the process to begin to restore that faith is this the best first step to get people trusting in our democracy again
3: i don't know that i see this as something that's going to affect public confidence one way or the other. Mm. Because, I mean, besides listeners of the weeds, how many Americans do you think know what the Electoral Count Act is? Passing the Electoral Count Act is, for those of us who study this all the time, we know this is necessary to stop the next disaster. But what gives me more hope is the results of the 2022 midterms, where in every swing state where election deniers were running for state office, like governor or secretary of state, they lost. You saw Republicans voting for Republican candidates who are not election deniers, but rejecting the election deniers. And that is significant. That tells you that people are paying attention to this and recognize the danger. So people might not know the minutiae that we've been talking about, but they understand the big picture. The big picture is that Donald Trump and his allies tried to turn his election loss into elect- an election victory by trying to manipulate the holes in our system. And we need to plug those holes. And so I hope that just the larger movement to focus on the dangers of election denialism, election subversion, if we're still on the ledge, we've taken a step back from the edge of the ledge.
2: All right, Rick Haston, thank you so much for joining us.
3: It was so great to be with you.
2: that's all for us today. Thank you to Rick for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Kristen Ayala engineered this episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Quillen Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.